Raised by the alcoholic. I'm sober only through the grace of a God that I was afraid to believe in. I have access to maintain in my life through a process outlined in a book entitled Alcoholics Anonymous. The ability to remain sponsorable and a persistent and consistent effort in our primary purpose of trying to forget ourselves and help others and consequently I haven't had a drink or any mind or emotion altering medication since October 31st, 1978. Sometimes when I say that I'm startled. I mean, it's like, um, I want to thank Mark, uh, wherever, he, wherever he went. Oh, there he is. I wanted for picking me up at the airport and hosting me. And uh, I got a couple members of my home group here, Hunter and Tiffany, They're from here from my home group, and they know everybody I know. And so all the really good stories of how wonderful I am in Las Vegas have been destroyed now that they're here. Uh, I want to welcome the newcomers, especially Mike. Mike. Less than 24 hours, man, wow. So if you never drink again the rest of your life, Mike, it'll be because of me, basically. Uh, make a little mental note of that. Um, you can just tithe every year to, to me on your birthday or something. You know. I want to welcome anybody else that's new. I'm glad you're here. I, I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say, because I just, I just was on like a 30-hour flight, right, to cross the world, uh, 12 time zones, and so I'm not, I'm a little goofy. Uh, my friends would, couldn't tell, because I'm always that way a little bit, but um, we'll see what happens, we'll see what comes out. Um, I got alcoholism, I, I got a a bad case of it. I, and yet for most of my life, or all my life prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, I argued with it. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. When it says in the beginning of chapter 3 that most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics, boy, that sure is me. I don't want to be an alcoholic. I'll be anything rather than an alcoholic. I'll I'm willing to be a drug addict. There's a little panache in drug addiction. I mean, there was rock stars that I looked up to and were heroes of mine that were admitted drug addicts. I mean, that's kind of cool. I'll be a drug addict. I'll be a mental health case, because if you're a mental health case, you get pills and sympathy. I like both of them. I'm good with that. But I don't want to be an alcoholic, because alcoholics are pathetic and obnoxious, and I don't want to be an alcoholic. And but I got alcoholism, and people who argue with the truth get sick. And I argued with that truth, and I argued with who and what I was for years. And As it says in our book, uh, through every form of self-deception and experimentation, we try to prove ourselves exceptions to the rule. Not alcoholic, because I don't want to be an alcoholic. But I, I got alcoholism. And I've had it... I. I, I don't know if I had it before I picked up my first drink. I know I was a little weird before I picked up my first drink. And I, when I found alcohol, my weirdness seemed to go away temporarily. I, I, all those feelings I had of not fitting and this awkward inability to, to connect with people the way I watched other people connecting with each other. 
I couldn't do that. First time I ever got drunk, man, I could, I, I could come out and play. I was free. I loved it. It was like I was, I was like a pretend human being until the first time I ever got drunk, and now I don't got to pretend no more. I don't have to pretend I'm not afraid because I'm not afraid. I don't have to pretend I fit because now I fit. I don't have to pretend I'm okay because I'm okay. I'm super normal. I mean, I went from being the kid, hanging out with the older kids, the tough kids that didn't fit, man, always coming from behind. To, after about five or six drinks, I, I was their leader. I mean, I just knew it. You know, I'm, I mean, I loved it. I loved alcohol. I loved the effect produced by it. I, it, it allowed me to, to, to play in a band and sing. It allowed me to dance and go to pick up girls and talk to girls. I couldn't talk to girls. Man, I'll tell you, if it wasn't for alcohol, I'd probably be celibate to this day. I mean, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I just, I was too locked up, man, too locked up with fear and insecurity. But alcohol set me free. I loved it. Well, I got alcoholism. I don't know I have alcoholism, but I do. And what, what that means is I got that definitive characteristic. That when I start to drink and the effect of the alcohol, start to feel that feeling, I just break out an irresistible yearning for more. Man, I'm just... And, I, and, and my more takes a lot of different forms. I'm the guy... If I was at your house and we're drinking and all of a sudden it's gone and there's no more, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to either go leave and go get some more or I might go into your bathroom and go through your medicine cabinet and just take whatever's there. Half the time I don't even know what I'm taking. I'd like to read the labels. If it says do not operate heavy machinery, this could be good. <laughs> if it says... If it says may cause sleeplessness, that could be good in a different way. Uh, and I just took stuff out of medicine cabinets because I, because once I've lit the fuse by drinking, I gotta, I can't, I can't get satisfied. And I, I and sometimes I, I get pills out of people's medicine cabinets, turn my legs to rubber. I just be falling around. And uh, one time I took some stuff out of there. I was, was up. For about a day and a half, I was going to change the world. I got this plan. We're going to change the government and everything else. And that was amazing. And one time I got just really very regular. Um, <laughs> I ate all the pills off a wheel. And I found out later there's no chance I'll be pregnant in my lifetime. <laughs> and why do I do that? Is it because I'm a pill head? No, it's because I got alcoholism. And when I light that fuse, man, I can't put it out. And it's always been true, and yet I couldn't see it. I remember, as I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was probably 19 years old. I was in a treatment center. And from, for the next couple years, I was in and out of AA, and I would hear people in AA talk about this allergy to alcohol and this phenomenon of craving, but I don't have that. I mean, I get drunk, I'm in trouble, I get arrested, I lose jaw, yeah, yeah, I get all that, but I can't see the cause and effect of the allergy because of the way it uses my own mind against me. 
I, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's ever gotten in a lot of trouble drinking. And I, that happened to me. Trouble, if you're an alcoholic, you know some trouble. And I was having one of those mornings where, man, it was bad. I'm sick. And I need a drink, but I'm afraid to drink because the night before, man, I, I don't remember everything I did because I'm a blackout drinker. But I remember little, little bits and pieces of it, and it just makes me shudder in shame. And there's always, you know, there's always those people who just live to tell you what you did the night before. It's like Christmas for them, you know I mean? And, oh, you know, and I'm getting little bits and pieces from other people, and it's just horrible. It's, it's frightening. I'm thinking, this is oh, it's disgusting stuff. I could have went to prison. This is really bad. It's embarrassing. I don't, there's, now there's a whole group of people that saw me last night. I don't want to ever see them again. Right? And I'm nervous, and I need to drink bad, but I'm afraid to drink, and I don't know what to do, and I'm supposed to meet some guys down at the bar. We're going to shoot some pool, and have some f fun, and I've got to meet, I want to meet them, I need to meet them, I need to have a drink, but I don't know, I, God, I can't do what I did last night, man, I can't, this cannot happen again. So I start thinking, and it's, for a guy like me, thinking's like trying to carry water in a net. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's not a good kind of deal, I, I can't get much traction in thinking, except I keep going back to the finding ways to drink. So I think to myself, okay, I can't get in trouble like I did last night, but I've got to go meet my buddies. And you know what? You know, you know what? I'm just going to have, I'll have eight drinks. Eight's a good number. Eight's a good, just thinking about eight, eight's enough to get a nice buzz, have some fun with my friends, shoot a little pool, have some laughs. Eight drinks is good. Never got in trouble with eight drinks, never punched a cop on eight drinks, never did anything, never tried to take my pants off over my head with eight drinks. Eight drinks is safe, it's comfortable, it's, it's secure, I'm good to go, eight drinks. And I'm on my way down to the bar with a feeling of confidence. Eight drinks, it's going to be good. And if you've ever done that, it's a funny phenomenon. When you get to seven, <laughs> you realize that eight's a bad number. I don't know that that's an allergic reaction to alcohol because in me it just seems like I changed my mind. It seems like I, I have better information now. <laughs> and so I got alcoholism and I don't know it. I, I was probably 10 years sober maybe. I don't know. I was sober a long time. I was at a meeting. People were talking about, there was a couple people there that talked about cross, you know, drinking socially for a number of years and then crossing over a line into alcoholism. And I remember thinking, I don't think I've ever done that. I don't think I've ever did that. I think if there was a line to cross over, I probably crossed it over 30 seconds after my first drink. And, but I was thinking, you know, did, was there ever a time? And I'm trying to search back through my past for, for one, just one instance where I'm out partying with my buddies, you know, or maybe in some guy's basement, smoking a little pot, doing a couple lines, drinking some wine. Maybe I'm at the bar shooting pool, doing shots and beers with my buddies like I like to do. Has there ever been a time when I've been drinking for about an hour and someone said to me, hey, Bob, can I buy you another drink? 
Has there ever been a time when I looked at them and thought to myself, no, you know, I'm good here, thanks. <laughs> I couldn't find one time. Not one. You'd think there'd be one. But I always have that reaction to alcohol. I always, now, any time I've ever started drinking and stopped, it's because it's because the heat's on me and there's people around watching me. But I have never gotten enough. And if you can't get enough, you're compelled to have too much. And so I started getting in more and more trouble as a result of my drinking. Because I don't just get drunk. I get drunk, drunk, drunk. And when I'm drunk, 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 oh, there's some stuff seems like a good idea. It's not a good idea. <laughs> I'm a blackout drinker. Any blackout drinkers here? Oh, oh, oh. Gotta be frightening if nobody raised their hand. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, I'd be, leper, I'd be the leper again, you know. I mean, uh, I, and I, I don't know. I'm, if you're like me, I don't. I never did anything good in a blackout. You know, never. Nobody ever came up to me the next day and said, "Oh, Bob, you were so wonderful last night." <laughs> you peed in our kitchen. <laughs> Threw up my living room. You hit on my wife. Sideswiped my car. Passed out my front lawn, stole my stash. You told everybody last night you beat B Bruce Lee in a karate match, did you? <laughs> and oh, it's, it's, it's horrible. And, and if you're a blackout drinker and you do horrible things during blackouts that you can't remember, it's like I start drinking over my drinking, which is like a perpetual motion machine. And the more I drink, the worse sobriety feels. And the more I need to drink, and the more I need to drink, the more I drink, and the more I drink, the weirder things I do. And the more I loathe myself, and the more shame I've acquired, and the more uncomfortability that I get inside of me. And I don't know what it is. I, I don't think it's alcoholism. I started going to AA meetings, you know, and I got sent there. I... But I don't like AA. First of, all, first of all, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. Because every time I end up in AA, I'm in trouble. You know, and, I'm, and because I'm in trouble, being in a lot of trouble will open my mind up somewhat. And so I sit in the meetings and I, I, I think I need to do so something here. So I start watching you and I listen to you and it becomes very apparent to me that whatever's wrong with me is not the same thing that's wrong with you because I listened to you and you guys quit drinking and you were wonderful. You quit drinking and you laughed a lot. You quit drinking you had great relationships. You had great business and job stuff happen to you. Your, mir your endless miracle stories and oh, the whole universe just lined up for you. <laughs> And I hated you. <laughs> but see, I know I'm not alcoholic. I know it looks like I'm alcoholic because I got a DUI, I went to jail, I, I, I lose jobs, I get physically addicted to alcohol. I know it looks like I'm an alcoholic, but I'm not an alcoholic because when I quit drinking, what happens to me is not the same thing that happens to you because when I quit drinking... Abstinence feels like I'm doing time. I get so depressed. I stop drinking and I just get myself up on me. And I can't get me up off of me. 
and I feel like I'm suffocating here because my emotions are just, I'm smothering myself with my own feelings and my own fears and my own remorse and my own craziness. And it's, it's like the creature in Alien, the movie Alien, attaches itself to your face. I just get, I just get Bob right here. And it's not good. And it's not, and I don't fit anywhere sober. I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to come out. I don't know how to play with people sober. One of the symptoms of my of abstinence for me is all you take alcohol out of away from me. And you don't give me any substitutes. I become very serious. Life is a big deal, and there's nothing funny in it, life, and it's heavy, and and I. I'd be sober for little intermittent periods of time. Do you, you ever been sober with untreated alcoholism? Go someplace like a mall. You walk. You just look at people. They're just walking around, happy, for no reason. They're just happy, and you know why they're happy? Because they're stupid and they can't see all the terrible things in the world. If they can see what I. I mean, I'd have to get happy like that. I'd have to lose 30 or 40 IQ points, for God's sakes. <laughs> they just don't get it. Because if they, if they saw what I saw, they would not be happy. And I don't understand what's going on with me. And Silkworth, in the doctor's opinion, describes guys like me pretty well. He says, we're quit drinking and you're restless. Can't get settled anywhere. I live in a world where everybody settles in and seems to be comfortable, and then there's me. I'm, you ever watch a dog circle a living room trying to find its spot to lay down? I'm a dog that can't find its spot. I'm irritable, but I don't know I'm irritable, and I don't want to be irritable because irritable people irritate me. <laughs> I am not irritable. But what I am is a guy who can so clearly see how stupid everybody is. It's a gift, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Everywhere I look, I see stupid people. I see stupid people in traffic. Oh, my God, there's stupid people in traffic. Go to the grocery store. Stupid people in the grocery store. Do you ever watch when people buy a gallon of ice cream and a six-pack of Diet Coke? There's some stupid people in the grocery stores. Stupid people at work. And I go, I can't hold a job long because I can't suffer stupid people. I mean, they're not, they seem, they don't seem that stupid when they hire me. But I'll tell you, it doesn't take long. Uh, and then, oh, you know, then I'm intermittently forced to go to Amy's where they have all the stupid people grouped in Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh my God, A was intellectually offensive to me. All this happy, clappy stuff. Oh God, it was horrible. And everybody in A is grateful for everything. Oh my God. I remember sitting in a halfway house. I just burnt my life to the ground again. And I got to sit there and listen to this endless procession of Members of AA tell me how wonderful their life is. I remember thinking, this is hell. <laughs> it's not just that you ruin your life and you've destroyed everything worthwhile. You have to have your face rubbed in how wonderful other people are while you're, while you're 
while you've lost everything. Oh, I can't. People, they love, they love everybody. Hey, you throw that love word around. Like, gee, stop it. You ever, you ever been sick? Newly sober, depressed, feeling horrible, and have somebody in A come up to you and say, has anyone told you they love you today? <laughs> oh, oh, where's the door? Where's the door? Because I don't know what the answer is to that, but you know a hug's coming, and I don't want nobody touching me, man. I don't want nobody touching me. It's creepy. Dude. Everybody in A talks, they talk about God all the time. I'm an atheist. I kind of. I, I want to be an atheist. I'd like to be an atheist, but I'm not really an atheist. I've known some real atheists. You have to be very religious about your atheism to be a good atheist. <laughs> I can't get that much angst. What I really, truly am is I'm a guy who's a, I'm an anti-religionist. I hate religious people. And I'm afraid of God. And that goes to the core of who I am. That if there was a God, and I'm, and I'm trying to take the position there's not, but if there was a God, I know something. I know he's not going to help a guy like me. Because I did some stuff. I did some shameful, horrible stuff. I really hurt some people that were really good people. I know what I am. And if there is a God, I ain't one of his guys. I know that. Yeah, I don't care what any preacher says. I don't care what it says in a book. I don't care what anybody says. I know that the core of who I am, that I don't deserve that. And I ain't good enough for that. And so I'm the guy, if I just suspect you don't like me, I'm going to not like you first. <laughs> and so I throw God out because of how I feel about myself. And I made it their fault. I made it the church's fault. I made it, I made it everybody else's fault. But it was really me. You know, I've always been the source of all my separation and conflict, even though I have a mind that puts it on people out here. It's really always me. And so I, you guys talk about God, and it's like, oh, no, jeez. And so I don't do anything you do here. I'm dying. I'm dying of alcoholism. I'm ruining my life. By, by, the time, by the time I got sober in 1978, uh, right before I got sober, I tried to take my own life. And I tried to take my own life because there was a hopelessness. I finally became an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. And I didn't know that because I hadn't read the book. But I'd lost all hope. And the worst thing, that the, the one hope that was so important to me, and when it was gone, there was nothing to live for, and that was the hope that somehow, someday, someway, I'm going to control and enjoy that drinking thing like I used to. That somehow, that, that as long as I had hope that there was a party that I could jumpstart and get back to that feeling of freedom, that I'd had at one time, as long as I had that hope, I was okay. But once that hope had been dashed, and it, it, didn't, it didn't die easy for me, I went to great lengths to try to 
I mixed so many drugs in the mix. I, I went to therapy. I worked. I did all kinds of stuff just hoping to jumpstart that party, to get back to those good old days, and I, I can't. You know, I've never, I've never heard of a case of a real chronic alcoholic that, that has crossed over that line when alcohol stops doing that thing for you and only does that thing to you that's ever, an alcoholic that's ever been able to roll it back to the other side of that line when it does that thing for you again. And God knows we try, don't we? Oh, my God. I think, I think not, you know, and I, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I introduced myself as a drug addict, and, and it was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And, you know, some guy said to me, I said, I, I was introducing myself as, a, as an addict and an alcoholic, and a guy said, oh, you're new. <laughs> I said, no, I, I, got, I got two and a half months. I'm not new. <laughs> he said, no, we know you're new, because only, only new people say that because they don't know any better. I said, no, I think there's a lot of, most of us are like that. He said, no, listen, let's find, find people, how many people are you going to find with over five years that introduce themselves like that? And I couldn't find anybody, so I never introduced myself like that again, because I don't want anybody to think I'm new. Isn't it funny, when I was 18 years old, I want everybody to think I was 25. When I was 40 years old, I want everybody to think I was 25. I never want to be who I am. I always want to be more than what I am or less than what I am, but I don't want to be who I am. And so I, I didn't want any identifiers that I was new because I, I wanted to look like an old head here. So I stopped saying that. And, and the truth is, I'm not two things. I did a lot of drugs, sure. I did a lot of drugs for the same reason that Dr. Bob did a lot of drugs. He did, according to his story, he did high-powered sedatives every day of his life for 17 years. He did not drink every day. He drank, he was a periodic. But Bob wasn't a pillhead, he was an alcoholic. Because every time he drank, the exact same thing happened to Bob that happened to Bob. He couldn't stop. I mean, for God's sakes, the day Bill Wilson called up Ann Smith and wanted to come and see Bob, he couldn't see Bob because he was taking a nap under the dining room table. you got to like a guy like that because I'm a napper. <laughs> I nap all kinds of play. I just, I nap anywhere. I nap in booths. I nap in, I nap on your front yard, front lawn, man. I just, I'm a napper. And so I got alcoholism and, and the problem, and I started, it was hard for me at first to see this abnormal reaction I have to alcohol. And then after several treatment centers and after uh, countless attempts to control this thing and failing, I started to realize, man, I can't take the, I got that thing, I got that abnormal reaction to alcohol. I can't take the first drink. For me to have a drink of alcohol is like having sex with a gorilla. I ain't done till the gorilla's done. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I can tell myself all I like. I'm just going to go out and have a dance with the gorilla. And it's not going to be like that. So I get that. I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. But what almost killed me is, and I couldn't understand, was that I have an abnormal reaction to abstinence. It's what makes me a chronic alcoholic. And my God, I didn't want to be a chronic alcoholic. I want to have like acute alcoholism. Where the physical stabilization of the condition is, I'm good now, I don't, 
thank you for your meetings, but I'm, I'm on my way. I want to be that guy. But I got alcohol. I'm a chronic alcoholic. And over time, abstinence is not good for me. It makes me crazy. And I don't know that it's making me crazy because it doesn't look to me like I'm crazy. It looks like I'm surrounded by stupid people. <laughs> it looks to me like the world is so horrible and hopeless that I, just, I get in these deep depressions. It looks like I'm never going to have any fun. It looks like I'm never going to have a good future. It looks like nothing ever good's going to happen to Bob. It looks like, what's the use? And so I drink again. I, I can't tell you how many times I've burnt my life to the ground and, and swore to myself and coming into checking into a detox or maybe coming to in a county jail with ink on my fingers, swearing to myself, sometimes sobbing tears of sincerity, saying to myself, I'm never touching it again. I'm never touching it again. I mean it. And three months, five months, six weeks, I don't know. I don't know how long the fuse is, but I always go back to it because of a thing called alcoholism. You know, in the original third tradition, the one that, you know, Wilson wrote the long form and Earl Treat wrote the short form because and Bill agreed to adopt them because he couldn't get the couldn't get the groups to even read the long form. My old home group used to read the long form. Oh, they're long. Oh, oh yeah. You just watch it. When they start reading them, just the newcomers just start rolling their eyes, going, Oh, make it stop. When am I gonna get back to the good stuff about me? Right, they're long. So when he changed the membership requirement from the way he, Wilson wrote it to the way Treat wrote it, it, it's different. As we know it today, it says the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. I didn't have that when I got here. I don't even have that today. I mean, if I stop and think about it, yeah, sure, I have it. But it's, it's not a piece of business in my life. Because if you take care of your alcoholism, drinking's not a piece of business anymore. Now, I stopped doing AA. I get thirsty. But as long as I'm active in the steps, page 86 and 87, 12-step work with my sponsor, with my sponsees, drinking's not even on the table. But I'm an everyday member consciously because of the original membership requirement when it said membership should include all who suffer from alcoholism. I, I drank alcohol. I didn't know it. I didn't know it, but I drank alcohol because I suffered from alcoholism. And alcohol was the most immediate and the most effective medicine for this squirmy, not fitting, disconnected, depressive, anxious, worrisome state that's Bob when I ain't drinking. And I drank his alcohol treated that and it did a heck of a job. And I do AA for the same reason that I drank alcohol. Because Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to treat my sobriety problem. 
and I've got a sobriety problem. If, if all those years of swearing to myself and drinking again didn't show me anything at all, it, it, it beat it into me that not drinking is not enough. No matter how great my intentions are, I always go back to it. I don't always start with alcohol. Sometimes, I mean, one time it was two bottles of night. Well, I, I didn't have a cold, but I felt one coming. Got <laughs> to be a little proactive. Or sometimes I just go, I just, I, my emotions, it just drive me crazy. So I go to a doctor. You know, alcoholism is a funny thing. If you were to catch me, now I'm sober over 39 years, you catch me on a bad spiritual hair day when I ain't right, and we all get those days, I don't get those days that much anymore, but we all get them from time to time. You catch me on one of those days and stick me in a psychiatrist's office and get me to honestly tell him how I feel, he's going to start writing me some stuff. <laughs> you can bet on that. But I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, so I don't need nobody to write me nothing. It's been the most, it's been the only really truly effective thing. But I had to face something. And this is not true of everybody in AA. I'm a, I'm a spiritually high-maintenance alcoholic. And I, it used to drive me crazy because I'm lazy, and I would sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I would always look for the people who do just about nothing and stay sober. I want to do what they do. Give me a choice of going to one meeting a week just to check in or having a... A horrible dictator type sponsor that's telling me what to do and criticizing me and wanting me to pay back all the money, all the money. I I wouldn't have stolen all of that if I'd have known that. I mean, I mean, no, you know what I mean? I wouldn't have done that if I would have known one day I was gonna have to pay it all back. Oh my god. And write, write those images. I don't want it. And the and then here's the booby prize of all of this tedious, horrible stuff, you get to spend the rest of your life helping people you don't even like. <laughs> but I got alcoholism. And I had to, we all have to play the hand we're dealt here. I'm telling you, honest to God, if I could, if, if, if I could just be the guy who went to a meeting once in a while, and could stay sober, I would do that. Or if I could be the guy running the people that, that could just not drink and maybe smoke a little pot once in a while and not go back to drinking, I would do that. But I got I there's only one person I gotta be honest with about the hand I've been dealt, and that's me. See, if I try if I try to play your hand, it'll kill me. And I've tried to play, I've tried to play the hands of other people in alcoholic science, you know, because I, I don't because I'm a lazy guy and I don't want and I don't want to be inconvenienced here. <laughs> and pay back the money. I've never paid back one dime that I didn't know in my heart of hearts that I needed the money more than they did. sponsorship that just directed me to do the right thing in spite of how I felt. You guys have taught me how to grow up. You taught me how to do something that I never ever could do. And that's to other center myself. From the very, very beginning, you pushed me 
into sponsoring people and doing service. I didn't want to do it. You know, I'd, I'd spent years in therapy. I was My mother was a therapist. And I went to some of the greatest psychiatrists on the planet. Guys that had written books, started psychiatric movements. That's funny. The more therapy I did, the more money. My family spent probably a half million dollars on psychiatrists for me and treatment centers. And the more money they spent, the more that I did, the sicker I got. The more narcissistically self-involved and self-focused I became. Till I was dying, I was, I was swimming in a cesspool of Bob. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and you guys, from day one, you want me to start helping others. And I said to my sponsor, I said, he's hammering me, going 12-step calls and take meetings into the detox and the jail and all this other crap. And I said, listen, I said, listen, you know, I know what you're saying. But, you know, don't, don't you think I should work on me for a while? <laughs> and he reared back. He said, work on you. You've done quite enough of that. Stop it. <laughs> when he said that, I thought about it. I thought, you know, I have done a lot of that. If I could have been fixed, I think I'd have been fixed by now. I mean, I did every, I primal screamed. <laughs> I was hypnotized. I, I mean, I... Gestalt therapy, transactional analysis, rational emotive therapy with Ellis himself. I mean, I did all kinds of stuff. Because if it came up on the radar and I thought it was going to do something for me, because I'm a do something for me kind of guy, I took a run at it. So when I, when I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and you said, you guys said, no human power, I went, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Because I tried. I tried. And if it could, any of that stuff would have fixed me, I wouldn't be here tonight. I'd have been fixed. But I'm not. I have alcoholism. As Chamberlain said one time, it's the burr under the saddle. It's the thing. My alcoholism is the, is the greatest blessing God will ever give one of his kids. The greatest by far. And a blessing is something that pushes you, shoves you, or sometimes drags you screaming into being more than what you were. And my alcoholism is the greatest blessing I've ever had in my life. It keeps me growing along spiritual lines. I have to grow. It's, it's grow or go. I, I, I'm an avid scuba diver. I go all over the world diving. I, I just It's my, one of my passions. That... Uh, more than anything today. And those of us that dive a lot, and I'm sure there's divers in this room, you get to know some things about marine biology. And one of the things that we encounter a lot is, is sharks. And you start learning that there's many types of sharks that God's de designed them in such a manner they cannot stand still. They can't even sleep on the bottom of the reef like other fish sleep, just lay on the bottom to sleep. They have to sleep in motion. They get involuntary tail motion and they go out into the deep blue and they never stop going forward because if they stop, the water stops flowing over their gills and they cannot oxygenate their blood and they will literally suffocate from their lack of forward movement. Me too. Me too. And I'm that guy. And so uh, 
I'm, I'm, I got really fortunate in, in 1978. I, I tried to commit suicide and uh, I couldn't pull it off. And I was a young kid, my 20s. And a doctor that previous year gave me a physical. And I, I got him to give me this really in-depth physical because I was, I explained to him that I had a brain tumor. <clears throat> and I, it turned out I didn't have a brain tumor. I wanted to have a brain tumor because if I had a brain tumor, it would have given me an, just a, an excuse for my whole life. I could have went to my parents and say, you think I'm a bum? I have a brain tumor. <laughs> All my ex-girlfriends had come running back properly ashamed of themselves. Today, he said, I, you don't have a brain tumor. You don't have cancer at all. He said, kid, what you have is alcoholism. And if you keep drinking, it's going to kill you. But he said, you're young enough that you bounce back physically. He said, it may take five years. And I came to in the park in that hopeless condition of mind and body. I came to in the park with that, the book refers to it as pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. There's no hope anywhere. I can't, I, there's no more relief in getting high. I could drink till I pass out. I just can't get free no more. And there's nowhere to go. As my sponsor says, no friendly direction anywhere. And it's something... I thought about that doctor five more years, and I thought, man, something inside me snapped. I said, I couldn't do five more weeks of this. I made the decision to kill myself. But I couldn't do it. And I, this, I went to this bridge in Pittsburgh <clears throat> along the river, and I was standing on this bridge looking down at these railroad tracks, maybe 100 feet below or less, and I got this terror gripping. It wasn't that I was going to die. I, I don't. I want to die. The terror was that this might not be high enough. The terror is that with my streak of bad luck, I won't die. I'll end up paralyzed from the neck down, and I'll lay in some charity ward for fifty years where no one will bring me a drink, <laughs> and I'll lay there, and my mind will play the movies of every pathetic, shameful, disgusting thing I've ever done and I can't even get free. And that terrified me. If there had been a little plaque on that bridge that said, 100% of the people who jump from here are dead. I'd have jumped. But that, that fear of not dying terrified me. I've been trying to drink myself to death for some time, and I, I know there's a lot of people in this room, I'm sure, that you're kind of hope-to-die people. All those mornings where you woke up and you kind of wish you didn't. But drinking yourself to death is, is hard. It's tedious. It takes a long time. It, it's like being kicked to death by rabbits. It just goes on and on and on that's why so many of us start thinking about offing ourselves. Man, I can't hang. <clears throat> and I got sober. And I got this sponsor who was a fanatic for men's. He was, and he wanted, me to, he wanted me to pray. I tried to explain it to him that I, I can't pray because I don't believe in God. He says, I didn't ask you to believe in God. I asked you to pray. I said, well, my, you know, if 
say, and I don't believe in God, I'd be a hypocrite. He said, you've been a hypocrite all your life. What's the difference? <laughs> and I started taking actions I didn't believe in. And I, there's a line, and, and we agnostics, it, I, it, when, it, when this line really hit me, it brought tears to my eyes. It says, God does not make hard terms with those who seek him. I don't even believe in God, but I'm taking these silly little actions I don't think are going to work. And God came the rest of the way right into my life. Right into my With the, the endless series of coincidences that started happening. They were on, hard to ignore. And I eventually came to believe. My sponsor wanted me to, he wanted me to turn myself in and Offered to do the two years in prison back in Pennsylvania, which I thought, there's, there's moments when you know you got a bad sponsor. <laughs> but he convinced me that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stay sober looking over my shoulder. That the anxiety of worrying about that was gonna drive me back to drinking. And I knew he was right. I, I can I can recognize the truth. I just don't like it most of the time. And he, he got me to do that, and I didn't have to do the two years. It, was, it blew my mind, because I my, in my mind, I was sure I was going to do the two years. He got me to start making amends to my parents. I tried to explain to him it was too late. I, my mother and I came from wonderful, wonderful parents. They weren't perfect, but they were. they loved me. They sacrificed for me. They, they almost bankrupted themselves trying to put me through treatment centers and therapy and bail bondsmen and lawyers. You know, it's a funny little sidebar. I have a younger sister who, at one time, I, I was a, like her hero, I guess. And I was a big brother. And then I, I hurt her really badly. And I, I went to her, at, I was sober a little while, and I went to her to make amends. And I was talking in detail of my regrets about how the, some of the horrible things I'd done, the money I'd stolen from her, and the, 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 just the bad stuff I did. Just I was a terrible, terrible brother. And then I tried to, I did, I did the thing you're not supposed to do. You never screw up an amends with an excuse or a justification. And I did. And I tried to give it. A, I said, I said, well, March. I said, I said the reason I, I guess I. I, I acted like I hated you. It wasn't that I hated you. I was jealous because I knew, I knew mom and dad, you were so good. I knew they loved you a lot more than they loved me. And when I said that to her, she got mad at me. She said, how dare you say that? She said, I couldn't win with them because of you. I'd come home in the, the, head, the honor roll and I'd want to show them my report card and they'd say, not now, Marge, we got to go bail your brother out of jail. No matter, she said, no matter what I did, you got all the attention, you got all the money, you got everything. And it blew my mind. I never looked at it that way. And it starts, I start looking at things from the viewpoint of other people in my life. The whole resentment list is about that. It's about looking at these resentments from an entirely different angle. 
Sponsoring people is what brings that to a higher level. When you start realizing that you've got people in your life that are looking at you as an example of AA. When you wake up to that, I'll tell you, you'll stop texting in the meetings. It's either that or you think everybody should be doing it during the meeting. You'll stop doing things in Alcoholics Anonymous that you don't want other people to do. But selfish, self-centered people, I never see past myself. And I've got a million excuses for anything I feel like doing. But when I started waking up to a consciousness that included you and often looked at me through your eyes, the whole game changes here. The whole game changes here. And I started growing up. And I, you guys taught me how to go to work. I, I, one of the things that uh, became, that was kind of weird, you know, Chuck, Ch I was just talking about Chamberlain told me something, I had a short little five minute, less than 10 minute conversation with Chuck at a time when I was getting ready to, ready to quit my ninth job in, in the first four years of my sobriety. That speaks volumes of untreated alcoholism right there. And Chuck told me some things that turned my life around. He told me, he said, kid, he said, what you're getting paid and how much you're appreciated is none of your business. You got to go to work for one reason, and that's to help God's kids. You go to work to be of service, period. And I started getting up in the morning and asking God to help me to do that, to help me to, as it says in the prayer of St. Francis, this thing about self-forgetting and go in there to be a servant. And my life took off. And it, it was so, it was astounding. I started becoming so successful. I ended up running the place I was in. They ran into a, it parlayed into a partnership to own my own company and and just expanding and expanding and expanding. But you know, I don't. I heard a guy say this one time. That the, Chamberlain actually, I heard him say it. He said, "There's there's only one thing worse for an alcoholic than misfortune, and that's good fortune." Yeah. Yeah. I had a guy as I started to get really kind of well off materially, and a lot of things started happening that were very cool. I had a guy, a sponsor, come up to me one time, and he said to me, he said, you know, all this money, property, prestige, aren't you afraid this is going to go to your head? And what came, I don't even think I heard the words I said, but it was it was the truth came out of my mouth. I said, well, where, where else would it go? That's the nature of an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. I'm always trying to feed the things that should be starved and starve the things that should be fed. By the time I was 19 years sober, I, my 19th year of sobriety, materially, I, I don't can't imagine I would ever have a year where I made that much money again. It, it, was, it was embarrassing. I, I was running out of things to think about to buy. It was crazy. And in the middle of this this embarrassing, decadent abundance, I started sinking into a terrible, frightening depression. 
which made no sense to me because I have everything out here that I want. And I don't know what's wrong with me. And it's frightening. And I went to a meeting and I ran into a buddy of mine that I got, he got sober around the same time, a little before me. And I'm telling him about this depression. And he said something, he said something, it was bizarre. He said to me, he said, yeah, he said, you know, you run your mouth a lot in AA. Sponsor a few people, I think you want the bragging rights of that. You still go to some meetings. He said, but I don't think your primary purpose is helping God's kids anymore. He said, I think your primary purpose is you. You know, they say the truth will set you free. It'll ruin your day first, though, man. Because <laughs> that, that pierced me, man, because that was exact. It was my toys and my property and me, 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 me. I, I somehow incrementally shifted from being a servant whose life was about helping other drunks back to just being the center of the universe again. And I didn't even know that had happened to me. And that's frightening. That's why I will always need a... I got a strong sponsor, I'm telling you. Wait, there's a guy here, the same sponsor I have. He, my sponsor is wonderful. He, he doesn't care how I feel at all. <laughs> he doesn't even care. I mean, there's occasions where if he doesn't have a lot of calls backed up, he'll maybe indulge and listen to it for a couple minutes, but he kind of turns on his aha uh -huh machine, you know. Uh -huh. But he's very, very concerned with what I'm doing. Am I making my commitments? Am I going to my home group? Am I returning the phone calls? How am I acting in AA? Am I acting like someone I could be proud to be an example of? Am I acting like a good example of Alcoholics Anonymous? Or am I acting like a selfish, self-serving guy? When I'm wrong, am I promptly admitting it? You know, we, we grow from being wrong. Nobody grows from being right. Because if that was true, it's saying in our literature somewhere, and when we were right, promptly admitted it. <laughs> I don't say that. It's when we were wrong. And I grow by I grow spiritually by my willingness to be wrong because it right sizes me. Because there's only one problem, and Chamberlain used to say it, it contains all problems, and that's conscious and unconscious separation between me and you and me and God. And what's between me and you and God? Me. It's always the problem. I got too much of me between me and you. And I got too much of me between me and God. That's why untreated alcoholism is such a lonely, lonely business in this, as Wilson calls it, a state of anxious apartness. Where it's all of you, and then there's me. And I'm anxious to connect with you, and I can't do it. And that is the problem. And so this, I grow, I've grown here not by learning stuff. I grow here by self-reduction. I grow here by shrinking, Bob. You want to get closer to God, shrink you. Get smaller. And as I get smaller, I get closer to God. And I get closer to you. If I'm not, if I'm not all of that in a bag of chips, I don't have problems with you. Right? 
if I'm not all of that in a bag of chips, I don't have problems with God. Because I'm just trying to be a servant. I'm trying to help his kids. But when I fill up with me, and I do, you know, it, my nature, my basic nature is like I'm the back of a toilet tank. And now, please help me welcome our main speaker for this morning, Bob D. from Las Vegas, Nevada, on the topic of ending loneliness using the 12 traditions. That's a dumb topic, I'll tell you. Blaine Kent. Uh, I'm Bob Darrell, and I am alcoholic. And I'm a member of the Connect the Dots group in Las Vegas, and if you would ever go to that group, the other people there know that that's my home group by my actions. And that's very important. If you have a, if you tell people you have a home group and the people there don't know it's your home group, it's not. <laughs> I have a sponsor, and he knows he's my sponsor by my actions. And if you have a sponsor that doesn't, it's not sure if they're your sponsor or not. Um, and I have a sobriety date, which is October thirty first, nineteen seventy eight. A, a day in my life that felt like the worst day of my life. And if you would have told me on that day that I would spend the next 38 years celebrating that day every year, I would have thought you were crazy. <laughs> and it is exemplary of this thing that I don't know. And in 1978, when I got sober, I, I finally was... As the book said, says, we're beaten into a state of reasonableness. And I, I was always the I know guy. I'd worked in therapy. I'd, 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 I, was a, I read a lot. I was a smart guy. I, I was the I know guy. In 1978, I only knew one thing for sure. I don't know. And that saved my life. It brought me into Alcoholics Anonymous where I could hear you. Um, and I, I was thinking about this... Uh, I, I have a, my ego, even though I don't most of the time even recognize that it's there, it's so strong within me that it creates a resistance to anything that threatens its control, right? And it's an unconscious resistance. And, and I experienced that with AA. I, 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 sitting as a, as a guy that was a perpetual newcomer for several years, in and out, my, I would sit there as my head would pick you apart. It, because there's something in me that doesn't want, that resists what you have. Right? It doesn't want to get better. It doesn't want to lose its control. And then even after failing uh, and just horrible, horrible uh, relapses, uh, I was step-resistant. And I'm not, I'm not alone in this. Do you ever notice... How you'll go to what the great length shall go to rather than write your fourth step, right? I'll wash my car. I can tell my, my sponsor, you write anything? I've been doubling up on my meetings, you know, I mean, because that, that's good. I want to throw something that looks good at the, at the vacancy, right? And so, like, maybe I'll get credit for that. It's like, it's like going to the gym, killing yourself for two hours, and then coming, leaving and eating a whole cheesecake. I mean, it's, you know, it's... 
Uh, you don't ne one good action doesn't negate another. You know, it's, it doesn't work that way. Um, so I was very step resistant, and and the, the pain of untreated alcoholism in a, a, a per prolonged period of abstinence drove me to my knees in Alcoholics Anonymous, and where all of a sudden I I got to this place where I'm going to have to do this. I know I've done two BS inventories, but I'm going to have to do what it says in the book because i got to do something here because I ain't right. And I don't know how long I can weather my not rightness in abstinence before picking up a drink will start seeming like a good idea. So my, I was driven by my alcoholism. But well, well into sobriety, a long time into sobriety, decades, I was personally tradition resistant. Now in the beginning it was it was very adamant. In the beginning it was just like I was the guy if if I went to a 12 by 12 uh, 12 and 12 study group and they were on a tradition, I would all of a sudden realize I was needed at a different meeting across town, you know, because I don't want it's it it just they were squirmy to me. I don't even like eh, I, don't, I don't like that. That's this boring. Boring. And then, you know, I got, my first sponsor was a, a past delegate. He was a, he was a, he was a doer. Man, he was a doer. I met him because he brought meetings into the detox I was in twice a week. Sponsored a lot of guys. Very service-oriented. He didn't come from a big book consciousness. In the 70s, and even up into the early 80s, the, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous was big book conscious barren. Uh, I, I, my, I was a member of a home group that was, was a big book group. We'd read the big book and then people would tell their story. They'd read the big book, talk about their day. But nobody really had that laser-like focus that developed after Joe and Charlie uh, on the big book that we, we developed. And uh, so I didn't come from an era of big book consciousness. I came from an era where the people, the, the real solid members of AA that were really big into amends and they meant pay everybody back. I mean, I I, I, I remember having a conversation with my sponsor about a drug dealer I owed money to and he, I said, you know, I don't have to pay him. He's a drug dealer. He said, you owe me money? Yeah, we have to pay him. I mean, there was no compromise. And, and he was, there was no compromise on service, right? There was, he, they, they would not stand up against my justifications and rationalizations. They were very principled people. And they wanted me to do service and 12-step work, and, and it saved my life. And I, got, I ended up a GSR by default at about a year sober. Uh, I was a co-GSR, and the GSR got drunk. And I ended up a, a year sober as a GSR, and I went to my first assembly, and something, it got something inside me going. And uh, when I was a couple years sober, I got tasked by the, my service sponsor, who was a, at that time was a delegate and later one of the uh, legendary trustee, Ruth. And Ruth tasked me with uh, doing a two hours every Sunday afternoon, a 12 Concepts and Service Manual Study Group, which is a crowd pleaser.
just, I'd go in there and be a couple brow-beaten newcomers in there, you know, new GSRs, or two or three of them I'd sponsor, and the other two, they don't know why they're there, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I did that for two years, and it's funny how, see, stuff percolates into your unconscious, your subconscious, like, and then all of a sudden, 20 years later, it comes back, because that's when you need it. I think God works like that, doesn't he? It's, it's a funny thing. I've had things out of, for years ago, I've never thought about. Then all of a sudden, I'm in a situation in my life, and this great reality deep down within me sort of percolates something out. And almost like it becomes you. The things that I just, I did it, but I didn't really think it was useful, become useful. Uh, a lot of things have been that way in my life. And, uh, you know, I, I started to honor the 12 traditions uh when I was in general service, I went to a lot of t tradition workshops, uh, area, district, a lot of stuff like that. I started, but I gotta tell you, I, if you're an egomaniac with an inferiority complex like mine, it, it's like I don't initially gravitate to this stuff because I'm a good soul. I gravitate it because it, it, I see opportunity in learning about the traditions to go to meetings and lord it over the deficient ones, right? I, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I, there was a period of time where I was armed with knowledge of the traditions and the service manual. I would go to meetings, hopefully looking for tradition breaks, right? So I could rise to the occasion and, uh, and feel that smug superiority. <clears throat> and isn't it, is it, I think it's bizarre that, the, that my alcoholic ego would take principles that are designed to connect me to life and God's kids and use them to separate me from life and God's kids. It's, it's an ironic, there's no, there's no end to my ego's deviousness. And it's, and it's, it's continual squirming for spotlight, prestige, all, for, all that, all of it. And so I, and I don't, I'm not aware of it, but it's happening. It's funny, I, in hindsight, I get a better view of me in hindsight than I ever had in the moment. I think maybe maybe that's a blessing from God. Maybe there were times when I was so selfish and self-centered. If I'd have seen it in the moment, I'd have killed myself. I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's a blessing. Who knows? And, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I was uh, I was sober a long time, and and Alcoholics Anonymous, and I doing a lot of step work. Taking a lot of guys through steps, hearing a lot of inventories. And I, I've always, since day one, had service commitments here. I still have several a week. But, uh, AA, do you know your name is on this clock? <laughs> but AA started to pale. It, it started, no, it is, right? It started to pale. It, there's a, several of us up here. It started to pale, and, uh, I started, you know those subtle, those subtle little feelings like where you're, you're, now you're, all the things that you one time lit you up that you're doing in AA, now you're making yourself do them, 
right? Uh, having feelings in meetings like I don't fit, but I don't recognize it as that because internally for me, it doesn't look like I don't fit. It looks like I've outgrown all of you and you're stupid, <laughs> right? It, it, no, do you know what I'm saying? Right, it doesn't look, see it doesn't, I don't, I, I can't even admit to myself that I have those squirmy little pathetic feelings of, you know, I go to my spouse, I just feel lonely. You know, I, I don't say that, right? I say, I just, I'm lonely because you're stupid and I'm the only one here that gets this, you know, I'm, right, that kind of thing. And I found myself, uh, and this has happened to me a couple times in my sobriety, uh, literally, I, I never left AA, and I never left my, stopped doing service, I never have done it, and that's probably saved my life, because it's kept me tethered here long enough and solid enough for God to do his magic here through the group conscience, and, and but but I would, I was, I'd get toward, emotionally and experientially, I'd get to the edge of AA, looking in, never left, but I, and I did that, I'm moving towards the edge one judgment at a time, right? And I've, I've uh, I, I guess, uh, I guess God has restored me to some small level of sanity because there's something that's occurred in my sobriety that was never true for me before. Not only have I been able to learn occasionally from my own painful experience, I've watched you and learned from yours. And I've watched people leave AA and they leave it one judgment at a time. One compromised action at a time, and they don't know they're leaving, right? That's the deviousness of this alcoholic ego that I have. It's out to kill me. But it, it doesn't manifest that way inside me. And I, <clears throat> there's a, a paragraph from step four in the 12 steps and 12 traditions. that I, I, I just stumbled across it, and it was just me. And this is me with a lot of years of sobriety. And it says, it is from our twisted relations with family, friends, and society at large that many of us have suffered the most. We have been especially stupid and stubborn about them. The primary fact that we fail to recognize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being. Our ego mania digs two disastrous pitfalls. Either I insist upon dominating the people I know, and it's for their best interest, <laughs> or I depend upon them far too much. If I lean too heavily on people, they will sooner or later fail me and disappoint me. It's like everybody's just, you know what, the human race is a funny place. I have high hopes for all of you individually, and you always let me down, right? <laughs> they will, uh, if we lean too heavily on people, they will sooner or later fail us, for they are human too, and cannot possibly meet our incessant demands. In this way, our insecurity grows and festers. When we habitually try to manipulate others to our own willful desires, they revolt and resist us heavily. Then we develop hurt feelings, a sense of persecution. You know that feeling that they're just out to get me because I know the truth, right? That <laughs> sense of persecution and a desire to retaliate. 
as we redouble our efforts at control and continue to fail, our suffering becomes acute and constant. We have not once, not once, sought to be one in a family, to be a friend among friends, to be a worker among workers, to be a useful member of society. Always I've tried to struggle to the top of the heap or to hide underneath it. This self-centered behavior blocked a partnership relation with any of those about us. Of true brotherhood, I had small comprehension. I remember reading that and almost being sick to my stomach because it was true. Because it was true. And this is, and this is not because I'm a newcomer. This is how deviously and unconsciously my ego squirmed back into position again. And at one time, I think I, I really was surrendered in, for a short period of time. And then the, as, as Harry Tebow talks about this amazing recuperative powers of the alcoholic ego. And um, there came a point, I, I, was, I traveled with Joe and Charlie for a number of years and did the traditions with them, did the big book, did a bunch of stuff. And somewhere in there, I think it was when I started to wake up to the 12 traditions and what they would mean to, for personal application. As if, what if we didn't have the steps? And the only thing I had to, to change and save my life was the spiritual principles of the 12 traditions. What would that look like? What would it look like if, if truly the common welfare, you, how you're doing and what you, if everybody else came first and I was last, if I really position myself through my actions and my approach to life, that thing they talk about in the prayer of St. Francis, that self-forgetting, what would that look like? Wouldn't look like Bob. <laughs> what would that look like? This, this idea that my personal recovery, and that's the hook, because Bill's brilliant. He's got to give you, a, he knows how self-centered we are, so he's got to give you a little self-interest to get you to, to do things that are, you're resistant to. So my personal recovery depends upon AA unity. In other words, I have to be one with you and one with here in order to survive Bob. And, and unity is, is a, has always unconsciously been a big piece of business with me. And I didn't know it. I drank alcohol for unity. I drank alcohol because I'm the lonely guy that can't talk to people. I can't fit. I can't talk to girls. I can't make good friendships. I don't know how to fit. And I could go into a bar and I got to just be so lonely because I'd go in there sober and four drinks in, oh, these are my best lifelong friends. I mean, you know, eight drinks in, I'm saying things like, I love you, bro. You know, I mean, just feel that connectedness. And, and, and when you when you have suffered the, the, the pangs of anxious apartness that Wilson talks about, when you suffered the loneliness of alcoholism and you're, you're unco unconscious of it, yet you suffer from it, my abstinence would always be, I love the feeling of connection that I got when I drank. And, and uh, not to, this, this, 
not an AA sentiment necessarily, but I'll tell you the truth. If, if alcohol would have continued to do that for me, I would have never got sober. I'd have been willing to pay the price. I'd be willing to go, I'd, I'd be willing to spend six months out of every year in jail if I could get high like I got high when I was 18, right? Because I didn't think that AA could do that for me. I thought AA was just going to get me to quit drinking. Wow, whoopee. And so I didn't understand how, how important unity is here. There's, there's, there comes a time, I think, in some of us where we realize that the most important thing we have in our life, it's more important than your, than your husband or wife. It's more important than your kids. It's more important than your house, your job. It's your seat in Alcoholics Anonymous. That your chair here is the most important thing you have. Because without that, you're going to lose everything else anyway. right? Now, if you're a problem drinker, that may not be true. If you're a hard problem drinker, the, the person who drinks horrifically and, and dangerously and destroys their life, but when they get sober, they're good. Then that might not apply. But I, I am the chronic alcoholic. I, I don't just have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. I have an abnormal reaction to abstinence. And, and, and it's your fault somehow. And I, haven't, I can't always figure that out, but it always seems to be your fault. You know, our common welfare should come first. My personal recovery, I have to be connected here. And I have to do, that means, that, you know what that means sometimes? That means sometimes I'll have to make amends to people when, when I, I, didn't even, I didn't even do anything. But they think I did. And Sandy used to say the person with the most tools gets to do the work. Right? So I've, I've had many, many conversations with people in AA where I watch them and they act like I've hurt them. They act Now, I don't know what I did. But I also understand that I am very capable of stepping on people's toes and not realizing it. Because I just got me right here and I don't even know I'm stepping on your toes. I'm just trying to get to the next thing that's important to Bob. And I don't even know it. So I've gone up to people and I say, listen, I want you to know something. I've always liked you. I love you. But I have a feeling like I did something. Maybe I don't unconsciously have stepped on your toes. And if that's the case, please tell me what it is, man. I don't want to be like this with you. Tell me what it is. I'd like to make it right. And Because um, nothing's more important than being one with you. Because if you left unchecked, what happens is, I don't know. I'm going to be around him. I'm going to be around him. He's an idiot too. I'm not going to be around him. And, and I resent by, if I just think you don't like me, I'm going to not like you first. And not only am I going to resent you, I'll resent by default everyone who you know and likes you. Which I'm telling you something, alcoholics and others can become a lonely business like that. So nothing's more important than, than my, my chair here. You know, uh, and that's not, that's not just true. That's true in, in uh, everything, in every area of my life. It's true in my, all my friendships, interactions with people. It's true. It's true in my business. I, I ran my company for uh, a lot of years on the 12 traditions. I, they didn't, the, the non-alcoholic people who worked for me didn't know they were the 12 traditions. They just, but they, 
It's funny, we resist these principles. Normal people go, oh yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> no, really, they do. I mean, it's like, I've had to, I've had to bludgeon my sponsees with a big book for weeks to get them to go to, just even, no, they just, oh, unity, yes, that's good. Group conscience, group, con oh, nice, that's great. That's very nice of you to think of that. Huh? Well, I'm telling you. You know, not only for my group con purpose, but for my personal purpose, there is an ultimate authority here. I mean, it's, 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 the, it's the turning point. It's the crux of AA. It's, it's where we begin to live our life on a different basis. It's a third step prayer. It's the intention of surrender, even though we may not, that just saying the prayer doesn't surrender you. It's the intention of surrender. I'm on a different basis now. The basis of trusting and relying upon God. And there is this, ulti this ultimate authority. It, the, book, the tradition says, expresses himself in our group conscience. I think there's a covenant in Alcoholics Anonymous that when two or more of us come together for the purpose of recovery, God's in the midst. And I think that's true on a one-on-one -on -one individual, one alcoholic talking to another. I think it's true with my sponsor. I, it's been true with the people I sponsor. I, I mean, if you, how many people in here sponsor people? All right, I'm preaching to the choir here. Uh, you guys know this. If you sponsor people, you know that God will, he'll do stuff in you. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be with someone who's struggling and suffering, and the truth is you have nothing to give them. And it's a funny dynamic. It's like a portal opens up inside of me, and, and stuff comes out that I don't even... I, I've, had this, I've had this experience where I catch myself saying something to a guy, and it's blowing my mind what I'm saying to the guy, right? It's like, I should write this down. I think I'm going to need this, right? You know, we, we don't just keep this thing by giving it away. I think sometimes we get this thing by giving it away. And I'll tell you, you know, they made the announcement with the cell phones. And Carl Jung talked about the collective, the collective unconscious. And, and I think that, to me, that I think what he's talking about is the same thing it talks about in, in the book, The Great Reality, the same thing they talk about in tradition number two, the way God will express himself. And he, God talks to us continually in meetings, but you've got to show up where God, in the, in the venues where God speaks the loudest. And he's, I, hundreds, hundreds of times, he's talked to me in AA meetings, hundreds of times, where I'm sitting there and I'm not doing well, or I got some unresolved stuff in my life, or an unmade amends, or something going on and there'll be some stranger there and it's just at the moment when I can hear it starts talking about what's going on with me and the reason that in, in my home group and, and a lot of the, a lot of groups that I have a lot of respect for in Alcoholics Anonymous we discourage anything that's a distraction in the meeting like your cell phones and I know I, I, I Believe me, I've, I've learned this the hard way by having my cell phone on in a meeting. And it's, it's a, sometimes it's, it's an innocent thing you forget. But what happens when it goes off, there could be people sitting around you that God's talking to 
through the people that are sharing the meeting. And now there's like a minute and a half of blank spot in the meeting because of the cell phone. Well, that's not that bad. Here's what's really bad. It's when it's your cell phone and it goes off. Now you don't hear anything the rest of the meeting because everyone who turned and glared at you <laughs> when your cell phone off, you're gonna have a conversation in your head with them for the rest of the meeting. Right? And, and besides, I know, I know you, you, you hope this, but trust me, your ex is not going to come to their senses and be properly ashamed of themselves during the meeting. It's not going to happen. God doesn't work that way. Well, who's going to call you as a telemarketer? Who's going to call you? <laughs> I mean, for... Oh, God. So... I don't want to do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous. I try to sit quietly. Sometimes if I drink a lot of tea or stuff, sometimes I got to get, I hate it. I hate to do this. Sometimes I have to get up and go to the bathroom. Beyond my control, it's, it's, a, it's a lesser of two evils of sitting there. And Yeah, no, it's, it would be bad. It would be bad. But I don't like to do that. Because I, I, and I try to do it, I try to get almost to be like a mouse when I do it. Be small and, and not disruptive. Because, if I have to do that, because I don't want, I want God, I want you to be able to hear. Hear what's, God's talking to you here, for God's sakes. Open your ears, listen, be present here. That's why texting is such a horrific thing. And we, we, we make an announcement in my home group, no, no cell phones, no texting. Because not, not only are you not hearing God when you're texting, or hearing anything else, you're, you're consumed up in your head with you and the phone, but the people next to you, the, the lights on, and they're, and they just, it, it's, it, bright light, just, that's why they tell you in movie theaters, don't have it on, because it's a distraction, right? Now, you can, you can choose to come here and not hear anything. You can choose to come here and think we're all full of crap. You can choose to not do none of this. That is your right. But don't interfere with someone else who's trying to struggle towards the light. Don't get between them and the light. Don't do that. You know, you could be, you, you just never know. I, Billy said something last night I really liked. I, I too have been, and I thought this for a long time. I wished we would have, you know, I wish Wilson would have held his ground on the on the long form. But, you know, he couldn't get, he, he, there's letters in our archive, he couldn't get people, he couldn't get groups, they, they don't even want to read them, because they're long. <laughs> I mean, my old, my old homer, we used to read them, and, and, oh, I, you just, you watch the newcomers who have the attention span of a gnat, you know, <laughs> sitting there, and it's just like, oh, make it stop. <laughs> Let's get back to the important stuff. It has to do with me. You know, it's, it's right. It's like, and I get it. I'm that way. I'm wired like that. I get it. I don't. I don't condemn people for being that way. Uh, but I understand. I understand Wilson's frustration. So when Earl Treat, and I got this information just recently from Gail, when Earl Treat wrote the short form, I always knew it wasn't Wilson. I just didn't know who until. Gail told me. And Dr. Bob sort of sponsored Earl, I guess, from a guy from Chicago, and, and uh, the pressure was on Wilson and A is falling apart. 
he conceded to adopt those, and that's the one. Those are the most, there's a, most members of AA don't even know the long form exists. But in the third tradition, the long form really nails it for me. And I think that the ad adaptation of the short form changed Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I, I can look at this from both sides of the street. It's brought a lot of people into AA, and it's helped them and, and enriched their lives. But it's also brought a lot of people into Alcoholics Anonymous who just have a desire not to drink and they don't suffer from alcoholism. So everything that every positive thing that may have come about as a result of it, I think there's an equal, if not greater, negative thing that's happened to us as a result of it. See, I, I am not an everyday member of AA because I have a desire not to drink. I'll tell you, that isn't even a piece of business in my life. I, I, everything that talks about in step 10 has happened for me. I've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected from alcohol. And it, I, through little effort on my part, except I just, if you treat your alcoholism, your drinking takes care of itself, right? So I'm not an everyday member of Alcoholics Anonymous because I have a desire not to drink. I mean, I do if I stop and think about it. Oh yeah, I don't know, I, I love my sobriety, yeah. But I am an everyday member of Alcoholics Anonymous because I suffer from alcoholism in sobriety. In those feelings that, for, that are intermittent for me of restless, irritable, discontent. The feelings of anxious apartness and separation. The depression that, that so many of us, from Bill Wilson on, have been plagued with. All of that. And so I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I work these steps, I sponsor guys, I do service here, I do all of this because I suffer from alcoholism. I don't do it because I'm a good guy. I don't do it so people walk around and say, I touched the hem of his garment. I mean, I don't do it. I, don't do it. I do it because I suffer, because I have a hard, hard case of alcoholism. I, I am a high maintenance alcoholic. Oh my God. I am a high maintenance. I, I wish there's not, not everybody in AA is like me. There, there are people that can just, they're fine. They go to a one meeting a week, and when they really want to amp up their spirituality, they might go to two. Uh, they might even say hi to a newcomer once in a while. I mean, you know, they've, they've made every amends that, that was coming at them and they couldn't duck. Um, But they're, and, and they're fine, and they're fine. I used to resent those people. I remember going to my sponsor, just, I was angry. Because I'm at meetings, I'm doing all this service, I'm doing all this crap. I'm, I'm paying every, they won't let me, they want me to pay everybody back. And I'm going to, I'm going to my sponsor, and I'm complaining. You know, and he just, eh. He said, you have to play the hand you're dealt, not the hand they're dealt. You gotta find your alcoholism here, and I mean beyond the drinking. You gotta find your alcoholism here, beyond the drinking, and bring that to Alcoholics Anonymous, because that's what we're about. Alcoholics Anonymous is not designed to treat your drinking problem. That's a, a, a benefit from it. That's a but we're really designed to treat your abstinence problem, to treat everything that happens to you that makes you subtly alone and depressed and separate in your abstinence. And that's what we do here. And that's it, and we do it very effectively. Very, it's a magical thing that happens here, the way God works through all this stuff. And 
So I, I'm an everyday member of Alcoholics Anonymous because of that. And this, I, I love what, God, I, I really liked Billy's talk last night. The thing about autonomy, um, autonomy, the tradition of autonomy, the principle of autonomy, without an awakening and, and a consciousness of the other traditions and the welfare of others is, is just, it's a wild card to be rebellious and crazy and self-serving. But autonomy gives us an, an amazing amount of freedom, but freedom without consciousness of responsibility is anarchy. It's destructive. And so we're, you know, and this is not true just of us. This is built into the consciousness of the human race. One of the, the, the great, I, I, I would, one of the great things God has given us, and sometimes the most hard thing he's given us, is free will. Free will. We're the only creatures on the planet that have the ability to go against your very instincts and your very nature to the point of self-destruction. You'll never walk through a forest and see a, a deer smoking a crack pipe, right? And, and drinking a bottle of wine. You'll never, it doesn't happen. Because, matter of fact, the deer's going to go, nah! But God's given us free will. We can actually choose, not only we can choose to go against him to the point where we're, we're, we're killing people, we're hurting people, and even possibly kill ourselves. That we can actually go against that to that degree. And the same thing is true in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's, there's no enforcement here of the 12 traditions. My sponsor tells us, he says something funny. He says, he said, wouldn't it be nice if we had AA police, right? <laughs> You've broken the traditions. You know, we're going to take you away to a re-education camp, you know what I mean? <laughs> But it, it doesn't happen. It's not happening here. We are, we are granted a tremendous amount of freedom. But wake up. And, and that's my sponsor has been brilliant with me to, to get me to look at every action I take and what does it speak to the newer people, right? What does it speak to the newer people? You want to text in a meeting? Great. You have the freedom to do that. But what you're, you, you only get one vote, and it's your actions. What you're really saying, I think everybody should be doing this. Do you want everybody to do that? No, no, but my case is different. It's, I understand the rules. I just secretly think I'm above them, or they don't apply to me. They apply to everybody else. Anyway, I, I think the rules should apply to everyone except me. Like the handicapped parking thing. Oh, that's important. Handicapped people need easy access, but I'm only going to be a minute. Right? right? Above the rules. That's, the, that's, a, that's my alcoholic ego. I'm above the rules. And so we hope that this tremendous, tremendous freedom that we're given here, this autonomy, uh, that, that you also develop a consciousness of others. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of things I don't do. I, I'm a selfish guy by nature. I'm a self-gratifying. I'm, I'm all of that. Everything we all are. I'm that. But there's a lot of things I do not do because I don't want to put that. I don't want to speak that to the newer people and give them the green light on that stuff. Right? I don't want to do it. 
you're you're more important than me how did that happen tradition number five has been crucial in my life i don't know i don't know at what point in my innermost self i really got this but when i did it changed everything you know i came to alcoholics anonymous like all of us my primary purpose is me and my feelings and my relief and and what you think of me and my comfort and my finances and my sex and me, 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 me. And to get a level, some, a small, tiny level of self-abandonment where uh, my primary purpose is no longer me. And I'm given a, an alternate primary purpose. And that's to help God's kids, to help other alcoholics. That that really is why I'm placed here on earth. That is why I've survived this, this fatal, fatal illness called alcoholism. It's not, not to be have a big house and not to have money, not to have friends, not to... It, it really has nothing to do with me. I am given a, a purpose that is greater than me. And I'll tell you something, when you claim that and you understand at a gut level that your life is not <clears throat> is not your own. That you've been that you've been saved from the abyss for one reason, one reason only is to take all that pain, all that struggle, all those defects, all of that, and make it useful in God's hands. All of a sudden, life makes sense. All of a sudden, there's a rightness about everything. When it was about me, nothing's right. Nothing's right. But when I claim my primary purpose, man, even the worst things about me, the things that were the, uh, the, the deepest, darkest secrets become useful here in God's hands. And to claim, to start, rather than serving myself, to start to serve a principle and a set of principles and a purpose and ultimately a power and a people that I've made of greater importance than myself. I, th I had a nun uh, in Catholic school. She used to say something I thought was the stupidest thing I ever heard. She said, God first, other people second, me always last. I thought, nah. <laughs> it's me first, me second, and just me. That's all it is. It's just me. Um... I, I, I suffered a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous because I, my, I, I, 19 years sober, I started, to, I got into a depression because my primary purpose, unbeknownst to me, started being bled away by the, the abundance and the toys and the, the money and the prestige until I had become my primary purpose and I started getting depressed. A person wrapped up in themselves makes a very small package. No matter how good you get it out here, if it ain't no good in here, if you're not if you're not aligned with your purpose and God's will in your life, there's nothing. None of it means anything, truthfully. And so I, 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 I that's where I really started to claim my primary purpose. I was like almost 20 years sober. Now I was taking the actions, but I'm in my innermost self. Not so much. And you know what? One of the great things about having a home group and a sponsor 
and, and sponsoring people is that you will take actions you don't feel like because you don't want to look bad. AA is the, one of the few places on the planet I know of that'll take my, my hyper concern with what you think of me and use it to make me better or to tether me here, right? I mean, I don't know any other place on the planet that'll do that. Wilson's, well, Wilson was brilliant when he talks about um, money, property, and prestige. If you, if you could add one more thing in there that would divert you from your primary purpose, probably sex. And these are the things that, and, and uh, you know, there's, there's a, I've shied away from a few people in Alcoholics Anonymous because they're prestige predators. I had a friend, and he, I found out that he gets every talk he's ever made, and he, he, he puts it on YouTube and sends it to recovery websites. I said, are you kidding me? He said, oh, no, I, my message is important. <sighs> That's creepy to me, right? I mean, if selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our trouble, isn't that like self-promotion is like arming the Al-Qaeda, isn't it? I mean, or, or ISIS. I mean, it's... it's, it's don't feed the things in you that should be starved. And that, I'll tell you, I don't know about you guys, that's my natural tendency, is to feed the things that should be starved, and I will, unbeknownst to me, starve the things that should be fed. That's why I have a sponsor. That's why I sponsor guys. There's a lot of accountability in, sponsor, in sponsoring people, because you, you wake up one day, they're the primary example of how to live their, how to be an AA member, you're the primary example to them how to be an AA member, how to live your life, and how to exist on spiritual principles. And let me tell you something. Your sponsees watch you more than you could ever imagine. They watch you. You know how you know that? Do some self-serving out-of-line crap and see how many of them join you within two weeks. All right, they watch you. Oh, tradition seven, I... Self-supporting, I don't. I. I thought when I first got sober, I thought step one was get a job. I mean, it was Jesus. <laughs> I had a chance. I was a year sober, and I'd been working as a as a counselor in treatment, which against my against my sponsor's wishes, you know, that I'm I'm. I have enough ego is returned that I think I'm smarter than he is. You know, I think he's just jealous. Because I found a way to do 12-step work and get paid for it, and he never figured that out. Uh, that wasn't the case at all, and I lost that job. Thank God. God has done for me consistently what I couldn't do for myself. And I lost that job, and I was in a position to get $120 a week in unemployment. Now, back in, this, in the 70s, that's, that's a fair... I could have lived on it. It wasn't nice, but I could have lived on it. He made me take a job where after taxes, I only made between $96 and $97 a week, and I had to work 40 hours for the $96. I could have got the $120 for free. And sometimes you just know... He's, he's never, he doesn't know about arithmetic, does he? He just doesn't... You know. But he was so right because... It, I'm a taker. I've been a taker all my life. I've been a user of people, a taker. I'm a me, me. I'm like the black hole of life. Just I'll suck everything I can out of life and out of you. 
and they want me to take the actions of a giver and and they don't even care if i feel like it, just do it. and so i started becoming so i would they wouldn't let me take the free money. i to this day look back sometimes i even look back to this day and go but it was free money. <laughs> that free money might have killed me. I got the memo. But out of respect for my sponsor and the old timers that were here, when I got here, I begrudgingly put a tie on. That's what I've been taught. My name's Bob Darrell. I'm an alcoholic. I, uh, I want to see if I can clear up a little 11-step phobia this morning. Uh, I've discovered over the years and uh, throughout Alcoholics Anonymous that two of the most confusing steps are 4 and 11. And because they don't match our preconceived notions of what they should say. And egocentric people like me don't want to follow directions that I think my ideas are superior to. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what the book says and, as opposed to other various things. Uh, I want to start off with a little quieting exercise. I'm just going to do a short one because uh, if, you, if you're a novice to this, your head may get very, very loud in the silence. Um, and that's okay. Just let the thoughts pass. Um, don't it's, imagine yourself in a subway platform and trains are going by. You don't have to get on every train. Just let them go by, and you will hit the conductor. Will have a chime when it's time for your train. So let's just get quiet for a little bit. And one of the ex dozens of exercises you can do during this, and one of them that I like a lot is to focus slowly on my breathing and breathe in the cool, clear, clean grace of God and breathe out the angst and conflict of self. Breathe in the cool, clear grace of God and breathe out the angst of self. And let's, let's come back. We'll see you guys back here in a, in a few minutes. alcoholic that was a little short thing uh, if he persisted this uh, at that kind of quiet time something that's happened for me is ha it happens for a lot of us is that you start to understand that you are not the chatter in your head and you are not your thoughts that what you really are is the li is the listener you're the one that hears it you're the one that it scares you're the one that it motivates. You're the one that it tries to dominate and control. It's not you. Uh, I had a hard time with, with step 11 for a long time here uh, because of my preconceived notions. When, when I was a, a kid growing up, as in my teenage years and early 20s, I went to a lot of meditation class. I was, a, a, I was in TM. I was in Divine Light Mission for a while. I, I went to a lot of different yoga things uh, because it was hip. 
And we didn't do it uh, to get to get closer to God or to to be more useful and closer to others. We did it unrealized to spiritually grandize ourselves above everyone else. I can remember going to uh, parties and um, uh, clubs and things and meeting someone and, and uh, it was a common conversation. That, do you meditate? And if they said no, you just go, And walk away in, in a state of spiritual smug superiority. <clears throat> and so, uh, be, being the egomaniac with the inferiority complex, when I get sober uh, by nature, uh, step 11 actually was the only step that seemed attractive to me. And for those reasons, not because I wanted to be more useful. Uh, not because I, I, I wanted to uh, grow closer to God, but I wanted to be the guy that could go to meetings and everyone would say, I touched the hem of his garment. <laughs> and it was all self-grandizement. And that was my... Now, I, believe me, I, at the time I'm getting into it, I don't know that that's the hidden motive. One of the greatest tricks my ego has ever done is to convince me it doesn't exist when it's actually a driving force often in my life. And, um, so I, I, I started, I wanted to do this meditation stuff and I turned to the big book to see uh, what to do. To see, because somebody said, I heard someone say, well, directions for all the steps are in the book. So I turned to the big book. On the bottom of page 85 starts the section on step 11, and the reason you know that is it says in italics, step 11. Um, for those smart guys like me. And it, it goes on to, to talk about what setting us up for what it's going to do. And it, it says, it would be easy to be vague about this matter, yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions on step 11, on prayer meditation. And then the first thing, the, first, the next paragraph, it says, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves, which should have been discussed with another person at once? Was I kind and loving towards all? And on and on. And I remember reading this and thinking, that's not right. That's not step 11. That's, that's step 10. Maybe it's a misprint. Maybe that paragraph should have been in the previous page. And I, I went on and I read all the way to the end of the chapter, and there's no there's no meditation exercises here. There's no mantras. There's no breathing. There's no nothing that matches my preconceived notion of what step eleven should say. I did find a couple prayers. You know, we ask God to divorce our thinking from self-pity, dishonest, self-seeking motives. We ask especially for freedom from self-will, you know, inspiration. There's a few prayers, but nothing that looks to me like meditation. So I did what smart guys do. I don't follow directions that I don't agree with or don't match my ideas. And consequently, I never followed the directions of the book for two decades in sobriety. 
And that's not that I didn't do a lot of things. We, oh, I, I pursued so many things. I went back, um, I went back to some of the breathing exercises. I, I did the Course in Miracles. All good stuff. I did, uh, explored a couple of churches in town, the Church of Religious Science, Unity, good stuff, all good stuff. The church of my childhood, I, I was amazed how much they had changed. Jesus, they were unbelievable. Um, I, I tried the rosary, a little too tedious for me. I, um, I, did, I found a meditation that I've been using for 30 years, I guess. It's, I am the place where God shines through. Him and I are one, not two. I need not worry, fret, or plan. He wants me where and as I am. And if I could be relaxed and free, he would carry out his plan through me. Use that prayer of St. Francis. Use that to this day. Uh, I like the version. I found the, the other the version that's different from the one in the Step 11 and the 12 Steps of the Holy Tradition. the one that uses starts out with make me an instrument rather than a channel. For some reason, I like that better. Uh, use that, still use that to this day sometimes. Um, did a lot of things. Um, and I had a guy with double-digit sobriety that I sponsor. I was, I was probably 20 years sober, I think. I'm chronologically a little challenged when I look back, but I guess I was around 20 years sober. And a guy that was sober a long time that I sponsored came to me, and he wanted specific direction on what to do in the morning. Step 11. Well, the problem that I have is I don't, I don't have anything that's definitive. I mean, I don't have, I have a whole bunch of experiences and it's all good. Matter of fact, the book says it's good. It says be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they offer. So it's all good in addition to, but I'm using it all in substitution for. And don't know that. And so I don't have one thing, and I didn't want to give him ten things. And uh, So I said to him what they teach you in uh, secret sponsor school. <clears throat> in secret sponsor school, they, they tell you if you have a sponsee who asks you uh, for direction on something and you don't have a clue and you got nothing, you tell them either one of two things. Either say, well, just pray about it. If your sponsor ever says, just pray about it, what he's really saying is, I don't have nothing here, I've got nothing. Or, or B is just do what it says in the book. Well, that's what I said. I said, just do what it says in the book. And this guy goes to page 86 and 87 and literally starts doing what it says in the book. When he retires at night, he constructively reviews his day. He starts looking at where he's deviated from that the new basis of our life, which is in the decision in step three. And, uh, and then on arising, he uh, starts the prayers and the contemplations that it talks about, thinking about the 24 hours ahead. We, he starts doing that. And in no time at all, he seemed to be doing better than I was, which I don't really like that much. And I, uh, so, <clears throat> so I thought, uh, well, you know, maybe I should do this. And I started doing it. And um, one of the great... Uh, promises that in our literature of step 11 is emotional balance. And the emotional balance comes from uh, 
a surrender that we are trying to maintain where I'm not running the show. All conflict, it seems, in my life comes from a selfish, self-centered disposition in trying to play God and trying to control and, you know, a whole thing, judge, control, opinions, etc., etc. And so uh, I started doing this and I, I discovered <clears throat> that the goal, what it was doing, it was aligning me to my purpose. All the other types of meditation I've ever done in my life are very useful to serve self, for me to become more comfortable. But what it suggests in AA is, is not that. It, even though that's a byproduct of it, it's designed for me to be more useful and to align myself more with God's will and my primary purpose, which is not me. It's helping others. And so uh, I started to do this, and I started to get a, a little more balanced inside myself, and I started to be clearer. And, and, and I think being clear of all of me is what makes me ultimately the most useful in sponsoring people. And, and to, it, act, it, it makes the access of the internal small voice, the intuition, the whatever you want to call it, clearer when I'm, when I'm not... It, it's the, the great... You know, the, the great dilemma with the alcoholic mind that I have is that when I need God the most is when I'm the most blocked. It's because there's so... I go inside me to find God at those times and I just find a whole bunch of me just chattering at me crazy. Um, so to clear me of me uh, so that I can, I can access this thing. And I started doing this, and I, uh, I discovered around that same time a little passage in Step 11 in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions where Wilson talks about why uh, this self-examination is actually a part of Step 11. It's not, this is not Step 10 and mistakenly put on the wrong page. It's actually purposefully a part of step 11. Wilson says that uh, self-examination, meditation, and prayer, this is step 11 and 12 by 12, when taken separately can bring about much benefit and relief, but when they're logically related and interwoven, it will create an unshakable foundation for life. You know, taken separately, they do bring relief, but I don't want, I don't need relief. I'm a relief junkie. I've spent my whole life seeking relief because I'm self-centered guys like me. That's what we're, we're obsessed with, how I feel. And this is not about relief. This is about freedom. Freedom from the bondage of self so that I can be more useful. When I, when I said to, when I, when I formed the, the, base, the new basis of my life in that third step and I said to God, God, I offer myself to you for you to build with me and do with me as you will please relieve me of this bondage of self and take away these difficulties for one reason one reason only so that victory over them would bear witness to those I would help of thy power thy love thy way of life what I'm really saying is I want to try to uh, release, surrender my life, make it none of my business, my future, my growth, my finances, my relationships. It's not my business. Hands off. 
And I can't do that because I'm so, my default position is me, right? I, you know, even, it's always been that way. I look back at my childhood, the only thing I remember with any clarity is me. I mean, you know, I've been that way all my life. I mean, uh, so that's my default position, and, and you're asking me to take a new default position, which is you and God. Um, and you're asking me to install that, and I can't do that unless God does something. And he has to relieve me somewhat, at least, of this bondage of self. Because I am shackled in a hostage to my own obsessive self-concern and self-involvement. So I'm asking him to do that and do it for one. And if he'll do that, take away these difficulties with self. And there, and they, and this is this difficulties with self is something I'm going to search for the rest of my sobriety. In step ten, on the moment when I when I watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, fear. When I at the night, when I retire at night, when I try to catch the things that I that I rolled over during the day because I'm too full of myself, or I'm too busy, or I'm too important to stop, to pause when agitated, and I just roll over it, and then I try to catch it at night. And so, um, I, start, I start doing this, uh, this thing, this structured framing of my day, when I, what I do at night and what I do in the morning. And, um, I, I'm starting, to, it's starting to work, it's starting to catch on. And <clears throat> those questions at night, uh, I think that it's set up, if you've ever been to Hong Kong or New York City or any city with a, a predominance of buildings that are over 80 stories high, you will often see something very unusual in those cities. You'll see construction going on on the outside of the building. They might re be replacing facades, they might re be replacing windows. And when they do that, what they do is underneath where they're working, they put a, a, a net. And they put the net there because if, they, if, a, if a construction worker drops a hammer from the 80th story, it's a missile by the time it hits the ground. I mean, it'll kill somebody. And then you'll notice on the ground there's two tiers of scaffoldings with more nets because they know that it's possible to get through the first net. And they want to make sure nobody gets hurt and killed. And, and I, this is, Wilson is brilliant because he, know, he knows me. I've never met him, but he knows me. He knows that I get big, a big life sober. And I get such a big life that when, when things, when I'm agitated, when I'm um, upset, when I'm disturbed at all, uh, instead of pausing like I'm instructed to do, I often will roll over it because I'm anxious to get to the next thing that I need to do. And, and if you do that uh, and you never check that, what happens is it just builds up. It's like, it's like sweeping stuff under the rug and eventually you'll have uh, something you can trip on. And so uh, at night I try to catch the things that I was too wrapped up in myself and my life and my agendas. and my. I, like, I love the term in the in chapter five, our little plans and designs I, I, that I miss and so that I can uh, get right. And the questions are, are very, uh, very piercing at times. When I ask my, you know, I look back over my day, where was I resentful? Um, 
I have a tendency to sweep resentments under the rug behind uh, ego righteousness. I'm, I don't really have a resentment. You really are an asshole. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like it, I mean, anyone would, anyone would think that about you. You know? Right? And so, but it's a resentment, right? It's a judgment. And resentments are judgments. And they're ego-driven opinions. Uh, that I often create uh, on spiritual bad hair days to try to level the playing field, right? So where was I resentful? Where, where was I uh, selfish? I, I can't imagine a day uh, in my life where I wouldn't have some self-interest, some selfishness. Where, where was I dishonest? Where did I shade reality. Where did I not tell you everything that you should know? Where have I withheld information in a business deal or, um, or just in, in telling you a story about something because I'm afraid of what you'll think? And, and I, I've discovered over the years that as a, I'm not a, I've, I've lied a lot in my life. But I've never lied because I'm a liar. I always lie because I'm afraid. I'm scared of what you'll think of me. I'm scared of confrontation. I'm scared of rejection. I'm, I'm scared of a lot of things. And, and that's what fuels and drives all, every, every dishonesty I've ever had in my life. And it's all symptomatic of once, of, of once again falling back in deeply into the bondage of self. Where was I afraid? Fear, I, I, I'm afraid of being afraid. And so I don't, I, I, I have this ability to live with a level of neurosis and imagine that it's normal, that is beyond, it's not normal. Right? Is, every, everybody wakes up in the morning anxious and apprehensive and afraid, don't they? No. Well, I must. You ever have those mornings where you just wake up? You don't know why you're afraid. But you have this, it's, it's a feeling, I heard it described once in AA, it's a feeling like something, something bad's going to happen today. I don't know what, but I better be on high alert all day. And I heard a guy in AA call, he referred to it as a, fe a, a feeling of impending doom. That there's nothing in particularly wrong, I just imagine that there's going to be. And so if you're on high alert all day, uh, don't be surprised if you're not like a bad luck magnet that day. So where was I afraid? Um, do, I, do I own apology? Uh, I, I sometimes will have to call my sponsor about this because I hide in the 12 steps, 12 traditions. It, it says that we're masters of hiding um, one thing behind another, one, a bad motive behind a good one. Uh, and, and I'm very, and my ego is very devious and very clever. And, and, and I will, I will owe someone an apology, but I will stare so blatantly at how they're wrong that it overshadows that anything I did. So I don't really owe them. I mean, look what they did, for God's sakes. 
Right? Have I kept something to myself which should have been discussed with another person at once? I, I encourage... Um, I encourage my sponsees to do this, and I do this with my sponsor. If I've got something that's causing me a, a angst and a, it's problematic within me, I, I have to call him and talk about it. Uh, and I went through a phase in, in sobriety, and my first sponsor was a wonderful man, but he did not demand a lot of accountability like my sponsor I've had in the last few years, last many years. Uh, so. I went through a phase where I never, I didn't call him when I was in a bad spot. I waited till I fought my way through it, and then I called him and told him what I did just in case he ever needed that information. Uh, which puts me in the, in the ranks of the unsponsorable, right, uh, basically. Uh, so I encouraged the guys. I said, yeah, yeah, you could probably get through this on your own, yeah, yeah. But there's more humility in the transparency. And there's more humility in being open to a direction, whether you take it or not, to be open to it. To, um, to avail yourself of your sponsor's direction. So should I have discussed with someone at once? Uh, if it's real embarrassing at once, it's like maybe a month. Uh, and this question... Is, I, is to me is the premier question was I kind and loving towards all I really wish they would drop that word all off of there <laughs> all's a lot I mean I'm kind and loving to the people that are kind and loving to me I'm kind and loving to the people that deserve it but let's face it there's people out there that don't deserve it and uh, Wilson's talking about agape love he's talking about God's love he's talking about um, love and service without discernment or opinion. One, I heard a, one of the, a, a lady speaker, one of my favorite women speakers, say something that was really uh, very simple and very profound. She said, in her 40 years of sobriety, the difference is that when she dislikes someone, they don't, they never know it. And it's okay to have those feelings. But I still, it's, what's important is my actions. That can, can I be kind and loving towards the people that I don't agree with? Can I be kind and loving towards all? There's, there's been a lot of times in my sobriety where I've missed, uh, I've missed really great opportunities to be of service because of my own prejudices and my own opinions. The times I've been in a meeting and some guy will, will share something that is just, I think, is ludicrous. I think it's stupid. I mean, it's, it's not even AA. What are you talking about? What's wrong with you? Now, I won't say, I've learned restraint of tongue and pen, so I don't have to say anything. I don't give him any unsolicited advice or say anything to him because I've learned not to do that. But I'm not kind and loving either. I'll just give him a wide berth. Never say nothing to him. Give him a wide berth leave the meeting, what I just left was an opportunity because if I was awake, awake and other-centered enough to, to put myself in his shoes and ask myself, where would I be at? 
Where, where would I be at spiritually, emotionally, mentally if, if I was sharing that in a meeting? What would be going, what would have to be going on inside of me? And then I can maybe wake up to, oh, this guy needs a friend. This guy doesn't need a lecture. This guy needs a friend. This guy needs someone to come up to him and talk, tell him about themselves and the days that they've had that weren't that great. And I just, I just missed an opportunity to be helpful to one of God's kids because of my opinion. I think, I think I've often thought that you could measure my distance from surrender, my distance from carrying out the decision in step three by the amount of opinions in my life, amount of judgments. My God, if I could be, if I could live the tenth tradition and have no opinion on outside issues only have experience and know that my experience is possibly even biased, but it is my experience. But no opinion, no judgment on you, what you're doing, on life, on politics. I, I, I had to stop look, I had to stop looking at Facebook the last couple months. It was just it was like an opinion fest on there. I mean it was just like it was crazy. Uh, people, you know, asserting, and it's all, what, what, what generates my opinions? I don't know about you, but it's my ego. My ego is what pushes them out there. So if I could be kind and loving towards all, then I, I would be possibly in that state that it talks about in the 10-step promises. A state of neutrality, safe and protected. If, you're, if I'm surrendered and if I'm opinionless, or at the very least, if I'm willing to not act on my opinions and not engage in them, then I'm in, I'm in a state of neutrality. Because new, if you put your car in neutral, you can grab the engine all you want. You're not going anywhere. So life can spin around me. And if I'm in a place of neutrality, I don't, have, it does, I don't engage with it. It's, it's okay. Now when you say something to me, you... Uh, you can come up to me and say, you know, you're very self-centered and arrogant. And go, well, yeah, you're probably right. I, I am at times, yeah. I don't have to engage in a conflict. There's no defensiveness. There's no, there's just is. Tough, tough, tough stuff. Tough stuff. Am I kind and loving towards all? I miss... I miss more than I catch, I think, when it comes to that. How many times have I been somewhere and someone needed help and I'm too busy to stop and help them? Maybe someone with a flat tire on the side of the road or uh, just a couple, I, God, I did it. I just a, a couple months ago, I, I missed a hundred of these opportunities. I caught one. It really made me feel good. I was at the grocery store and there was some... Uh, I just missed one the other night because I was too busy because there was a guy in an electric cart that needed some help and I, I let the, the guy at the grocery store help him rather than helping myself. But a couple months ago there was a, a little old lady there and she was having, she had a bunch of bags and I just, I went and helped her, put them in her car. I felt really good about that. Now, how many of those opportunities do I miss or opportunities to be kind and loving? And why do I miss them? Because I'm full of myself. Um, doesn't make me a bad guy. It makes me alcoholic. That's the seems to be the default position. 
What could I have done better? Because you're going to get a do-over. The world of the Spirit's full of do-overs, isn't it? It's, it's a, there's so much mercy in this universe. How many times do you, see, do you see men and women who will admittedly, because of their drunkenness or their angst, will tell you how they were horrible, abusive parents? And then at 10, 10 years of sobriety, you watch what the kind of grandparents they become. Spectacular grandparents. It's their do-over. You screwed up your first marriage and you were horrible and you, and you just you cringed to think how selfish you were, how terrible you were. What happens? You get a do-over. Some, you get another opportunity to be a little better. Right? We see this in sponsorship all the time. When I first started sponsoring people 37 and a half years ago, uh, I, had no, I had no idea what I was doing. I, there was a, there's a gal, Minnie, who, in, here in town, who Minnie and I, for a period of a year or two, we went on a lot of 12-step calls, and we did everything wrong. I remember one time, uh, Minnie's keeping this woman who called central office hostage in the living room and she's looking and I'm in the bathroom pouring out her pills into the toilet I mean uh, what a horrible thing to do to you know that person will probably never come to AA because AA is the place where they throw your crap away you know I mean right but we didn't know what we were doing we were, we were driven by ego and ignorance yeah Or are we thinking of, our, of what we could do for others or what we could pack into the stream of life, but we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness. This Self-examination is we, we look, but we don't stare. There, there's a, a thing that's happened. This happened both back in the early 80s, and I see it happening again today, where people... They're not big on amends or 12-step work or helping others or service commitments, but they're big on inventory. They want to inventory and then re-inventory and re-inventory. It's uh, um, one of the guys I sponsor here calls them scribblers uh, because they, they don't want to do the follow-through, but they want to just like study themselves over and over again. And I understand that because the ego will tell me that it will find power in knowledge. The power to feel good, the power to validate yourself, the power to change your life. But in, in truth, in my experience, is that there, there is no power in knowledge. But there is one who has all power, but there is no power in knowledge. If knowledge has been anything in my life, and, and believe me, I've been a knowledge seeker. That's why I became a counselor at one time. That's why I've read all the books I read. If knowledge has been anything, it's been fodder for my ego to grandize myself and puff myself up into separate and above rather than one with. And Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to create unity for one with, not one above. One with. Uh, my grand sponsor, Chamberlain, Chuck used to say that there was one problem and it contains all problems and that was conscious and unconscious separation between me and you and me and God. And in our book, it, it talks about the root of that is selfishness and self-centeredness. The problem has always been there's too much of me between me and you. And there's too much of me between me and God. 
and maybe too much of me from between me and life itself. That's why alcoholism sober for a lot of us can be a very lonely business because I'm disconnected because I got too much of me out here between me and life. So after making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. And then what? Then I go to sleep. Because the next thing it says is on awakening. And there have been a lot of, many, many nights uh, where I get to the end of the day and I, I, I go through these questions and I got something stuck. I, you know, I, maybe at work I, I, I went off, I got scared and I went off on one of my employees writing the riot act and I was very abrupt and very harsh with him. And I made him feel very uncomfortable. And I did it behind self-righteousness. And, and he was wrong. And he was going to ruin everything. And, you know, and there I am at night. There it is. There it is right there. And I asked God what corrective measures should be taken. And I've had this happen where I'll, I'll go to bed. And I'll, sometimes I won't even make it till the morning. I'll get up in the middle of the night. And the intuitive knowledge of what i got to do is sitting right there in my consciousness. That I got to go to him and, and tell him how sorry I am that I was wrong. That he did not deserve to be treated like that. That I was out of line, and the, the truth was I was afraid. And I will not, and I will try to never treat you like that again. So we ask what corrective measure, and I, I think God cooks stuff out of us. You know, it's like you. you how many times do we don't, we don't know what to do, and if you can just. Be patient. Just don't fight the clock. You know, there's a, a great line in step 11 in the 12 steps and 12 traditions. It says that we do receive guidance and direction in our life just to the extent that we stop demanding it on our time and in our terms. You can't, you can't bum rush God. He works very slow. He's old. I mean, give him a break for God's sakes. He's, he's old. So when I ask what corrective measures should be taken, I go to bed. And a lot of times if there's something that's unresolved, I'll, I'll get up in the morning and there it is. So I consider the plans, my plans for the day. I do this every morning. I block, I block two hours uh, off every single morning. I got to get up. Uh, I, I got to leave tomorrow for the airport at 6 30 so I'm gonna I'm gonna be up probably at four because I got to get myself that two hours that's one of the, I think that's one of the greatest things I do is to set aside the time because it, it prevents me from rushing willfully with angst into my day because I've had a lot of when I ran my company I was so I'd wake up pray quick throw coffee down and run into the day. And I'll tell you, in my experience, I would carry that angst with me into the day. But to give myself a, a long period of time to ease into the day, you carry that into the day. So it's a, it makes a whole, it makes a world of difference. So I'll consider the plans for the day. I did that this morning. I asked God, my, the first prayer, I asked God to direct my thinking 
His will, not mine, be done. Direct my thinking so I can, because I don't often know what God's will is. I ask him to direct my thinking, and I ask that it be divorced from the three things that will handicap my usefulness today. Self-pity. And when you're depressed or full of self-pity, you're not of any use to anyone. It's probably one of the greatest handicaps in usefulness is self-pity. So I ask him to divorce my thinking from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. When I'm, when I'm dishonest, I have to maintain a defensive conversation in my head just in case you ask me about what I lied to you about. Right? I have to have a story, I have to have a, a backup story, right? So these are the three things that will, will in, get in the way of my primary purpose of helping others, of, of doing what I decided to head my life in the direction of in step three. The book says, under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Now that's, that's an, if you're new here, that's a novel thought, because it, it became very clear to me after I was sober not very long that my head was my enemy. But it's not really my head that's the enemy. It's the ego that's the enemy, the way it chatters to get me, the way it talks to me. It's, it's the way... I had a guy who was brand new in sobriety, first six months probably, and I was, I was nuts. I was having one of those panic days, right, where you just... I just, I'm in my head, I, I'm going to lose my job, and I have the people, that so I don't think these people like me, and, and I'm never going to have anything, and I'm just going to be, God, I'm going to be homeless, sober, and I know it, and oh my God, and I think I have a brain tumor, and oh, just on, and on, just crazy, I'm just nuts. I got, I got more, I got bushel problems. And I told this guy, I just dumped them all on this guy, and he said, so I've never heard this from anyone ever since. He said to me, you think that you are your mind, don't you? You think you're your head. I said, yeah. Yeah, it's my thoughts, my mind. He said, that's not you. No? He said, no, you're the idiot that keeps listening to it. <laughs> and it was like, wow, this is not me? This chattering? It's, it's the first thing that the book talks about on page 55 that blocks me from God. Calamity, the clamor. That's, I am not my head. I am the one that listens to it. I'm the listener. The unopinionated, unjudgmental presence that listens. And what my head does is it tries to scare me. You know, Wilson, Wilson was brilliant in step seven when he said that he thought that Self-centered fear was the chief activator of all our defects. My, my ego, if, it's, if it wants to take control, it's got to scare me. It, it, it's got to worry me into taking charge. It's got to worry me and scare me into dishonesty. It's got to worry me into selfishness. It's got to worry me to control me. I remember Chamberlain one time, he was at the end of the month meeting, our intergroup meeting, and he, he, God, he was, he had these laser-like eyes. I remember him, 
And he looked out over the audience and he's just, he, he looked at one, at, at quadrants of the room. He said, what controls you? They look at another quadrant. What controls you? They looked at where I was sitting. What controls you? And I sat there and went, oh, I don't know, but I felt like something was. Uh, but I, I wasn't awake enough to even, to even glimpse the, the, the problem. And, you know, God and the ego have certain similarities. One is I've never seen either one of them eyeball to eyeball directly. Yet I have seen their manifestations my whole life. I've seen the manifestation of God as he puts the right person in my path at the right time. As he, as he seems to use the fabric of the universe to line up things so that everything that I need, not everything I want, but everything I need is presented to me. And I see the manifestations of the ego as it, as it chatters at me and scares me and has gotten me to quit jobs based on what it tells me you're thinking about me. As it scares me into taking actions that will, I will later regret. So I see the manifestations. So if God gave us brains to use, if I can clear it of self... If I can disengage myself from the clamor. That's why there's a, a line earlier in the book that's very, I, I really take to heart. It, it says that we found that spiritual principles would solve all our problems. Um, one, one of the things that my sponsor is so good at and, and intuitive, and I guess it, from being 58 years sober and sponsoring half the frickin' planet, that he just, he has this ability to pull the spiritual principle out of the hat that applies to the situation I'm in. He's not trying to run my life, but he's great at pulling, and sometimes it's making amends, sometimes it's, it's changing my attitude, sometimes it's, it's just getting back on track. Just don't, don't pay any attention, just go do your commitments, go do... Go help that person. It's, it's, it's always actions that usually when I'm afraid would not occur to me. Because when I'm afraid, I, I, my, all my actions are self-serving, they're defensive, they're um, self-gratifying usually, self-seeking motives. A couple things that I want to talk about and I'll quit. I think one of the, the great things that Alcoholics Anonymous presents to us is contained in the idea of only. That we pray only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. That is the, that is the primary uh, suggestion in prayer meditation, only. And this, I think this differentiates us from a lot of spiritual movements. I, if, this, this uh, so tomorrow morning, if you turn the TV on, you'll see many evangelists on television. Some of them are pretty cool. I've, li I've listened to a few of them. There's one guy I kind of like some of the stuff he says. But they all seem to encourage people to pray for specifics that in some sense are self-serving. Pray for abundance. Pray for health. Pray that your kids go get into college. Pray To pray for specifics in an AA... The suggestion is, don't do that. 
we know something here from our experience and that we know that God does not need our ideas. We know that God's idea of Bob has been better than Bob's idea of Bob has ever been. That I don't, I don't want what I want, I want what he wants. It, it, the book calls that the proper use of the will. When I align my will with God's, because I want, I've wanted all my life. Half the time he asked me, what do you want? I don't know, I just want. More. Different. Yours. I want. You know, I don't know what I want. I just want, right? And, and so how do you stop wanting? You can't, so i got to want what God wants. It's, it's, a, it's a redirection of the wanter inside of me to want what he wants. And pray only for knowledge of his will for us. There's, so, there's a lot of prayers that, we're, that I say, and most people in AA say them, that really are contrary to this. Prayers where we're giving God direction. Prayers where we're telling God to do what to do. You know, when I was a kid, we studied uh, the Ten Commandments. The Second Commandment uh, is that I should not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And I, I think the vainest use of God's name, the vainest use of prayer, would be to pray for my will, wouldn't it? I mean, here's here's the Creator of the universe, been running everything for billions of years, but Bob's here now. And God, uh, listen up, because uh, I'm going to give you some orders here. Uh, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to say, God, I, I want you God, to grant me, I want you to give me serenity. Write that down, God. Write serenity. Write that down, okay? Uh, and courage. I, write that down. I'm courage. And, and, and hurry up. Courage. And wisdom. Wisdom. Uh, I'm giving God orders that we, uh, thy will, not, that's why I usually quietly to myself after I say the serenity prayer, I'll say, Thy will, not mine, be done. Right, to remind myself that I, I don't really want to give God orders. I, that I, I, I trust what his vision of me is. And that, I will, that he can build with me and do with me as he wills. And that it'll be good. I don't know what it'll be, but it'll be better than anything I could accomplish. To trust God. You know, my friend Mildred uh, from Toronto, she's a, a very bright, bright light in, in AA to me, and very spiritual and very well read and brilliant. And she said something about, I don't know, two years ago that changed my whole view of prayer. And I'll, I'll end with this. She said if you went back to into the Hebrew and the pre pre Christian version of the Lord's Prayer, and and I I just I saw that a few years ago. There was a great article in the Grapevine written by a rabbi of Judaism and the Lord's Prayer. The, the Lord's Prayer actually was adopted by Christ, but it, it goes back further. It goes back to pre Christian times. And she said, if you went back to one of the the versions of uh, in Hebrew, that the second half of the Lord's Prayer would align more more perfectly with the first half and with our 11th step. As, as it exists today, it's just, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm praising God and acknowledging him. Um, 
hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then there seemed to be a shift where you went from thy will be done to giving God orders. Or you start saying, uh, give us this day our daily bread. Did you write that down, God? Write that. Uh, forgive us our trifling. And she said that the way it was written back in those days was as a, a, an acknowledgement. Almost as if it said, you give us this day our daily bread, don't you? And you always have. You forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Thank you. And you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I thought, that's it. I can get behind that. Because that is, is reality to me, because God has always given me, every day of my life, everything I've needed. He's forgiven me completely and absolutely. And he's always let, tried to lead me to the light, even though I may resist the journey. Thank you for listening, and uh, I hope you have a nice rest of the day. Thanks.